today is the definition of hot girls have tummy issues. <laughs> I didn't know what you were going to open with. And I'm really glad it was that because we were just talking about Do it. Do you ever make yourself so anxious you get a stomach ache? Don't answer it. I know the answer is yes. You know the answer is yes. Absolutely. Yes. My favorite thing is whenever my friends complain about their stomach being upset, which to start off is tragic. Like, I don't wish that on anyone. But my favorite response is to be like, but that's because you're a hot girl. No, it doesn't matter what gender. Oh, yeah. Anyone with a stomach problem's a hot girl. <laughs> yes. There are days where I will just text you, I'm having a hot girl day. And you know exactly what I mean. Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> the great irony is... At least for me, it's impossible to feel hot if my stomach is upset. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's the worst feeling. I have been in this human mech suit for a very long time. And this mm -hmm. year in particular, it is just doing things it's never done before. I thought I had a system and my body's like, get wrecked. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like... <laughs> It's the embodiment of uh, never let them know your next move. That's what I feel like my body does to me. <laughs> Especially as a human being with anxiety, my body's like, oh, she figured out this is a sign of anxiety. So now we're going to do this other thing and keep her on her toes. I think I explained it to a friend. It's like, I'm an Eevee and I thought I was going to become a Flareon and... Uh, my body was like, no, you're an Umbreon, which is like, cool, but I wasn't ready. <laughs> I had a conversation recently uh, with friends about Pokemon and about as kids talking about which evolution you were. And some of them were like, I have never thought about it. And, and like talking to you, we're like, no, obviously we know I was always going to be Vaporeon. That was mine. Oh, a hundred percent. I was I was always going to be Flareon. But to be honest, I like the goth one better. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> hey, uh, remember that time that I texted you in the middle of the night uh, with our color palettes? Because I spent like over an hour figuring them out. <laughs> Speaking of things we thought we were going to be. <laughs> in the morning, I texted you back and said, thank you. I think I said you're like, you're, you're a goddess, an angel, a scholar. Because I've always wanted to know what my summer, autumn, spring, winter color palette is. You know, people have the whichever ones yeah. they are. And I suspected I was a cool winter, maybe, because I've got somewhat dark hair, pale skin, green eyes. And then for you to validate it like that so thoroughly was such a gift. The best part is we're talking about this as if it wasn't last night going into this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very recent. Although, to be clear, you got cool winter. You also got cool summer, clear winter, which feels like winter, winter, and then soft summer which are all like the same colors broken down into the most minuscule shade variations yes. i'm going with the one that lets me wear black because that feels very validating you to my wardrobe bitch. <laughs> okay so <laughs> i'm either a classic autumn a soft autumn a warm spring or a warm autumn which again all the same colors broken mm -hmm. down in the most ridiculous way did i get black in mine no oh, no and my first response to you was gonna be i'm so sorry 
that you don't get to wear black. But then I, I took I deleted that because I was like, that's mean. If she's already mad about that, I'm not going to rub it in because black was a primary color on mine. She is already mad about it. And she did notice it was a primary color on yours. <laughs> I'm not giving up black, though. The, Nor should you. The you world can it. pry it out of my cold, dead hands. So much of my closet is black clothing. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say it here because those algorithms are wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. I work in IT. I know better than the computers. And black is actually your top color. So congrats. It's actually the best color on you. It makes you glow and stand out the most. So you should wear more of it. Real best friend behavior. <laughs> See, here's the thing. Black, I don't care if it makes me look worse. I don't care. I mm -hmm. need it. I need it the way I also need Pepto-Bismol. I don't know. It keeps me alive. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it is like, you know, you look at your life, you're like, I got to have water. I got to have food. I got to have black clothing. That's not the order for sure. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess it's probably not. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rowan Hall and I got to have black clothing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison and I already have a lot of black clothing. Get wrecked. This is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology. That makes the world so fascinating. <laughs> Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the show, set up your podcast app to automatically download our new episodes. It's an easy, free way to help any podcaster's metrics, and then you always have us available at the tip of your fingers, even when your phone is on airplane mode. Ooh. Or, mm. of course, you can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. We really appreciate you helping us keep the mics on and the lights on. And, um, what else, what else do we need? I don't know. The black Books. clothing. Oh, black clothing. <laughs> <laughs> or... You can support the show by hosting a little dinner party for a few of your closest friends. Make your favorite food to share and make a toast to all the wonderful people around the table who make your life so fantastic. But no matter what you do, we're just happy to have you here. All right. So, Tracy did Radcliffe Hall. And I said, who am I going to cover that's iconic and queer? <laughs> and I went to Hans Christian Andersen. I will say, this man has been on my list for a minute. I think he's come up in every kind of season discussion we've ever had. Yeah. But he's always been kind of on my JV list. He's my junior varsity queer historical icon. <laughs> As we're known to rank them, yes. Right, because we love sports. <laughs> so much. And I think the reason for that is that his work really stands on its own. You can read one of his fairy tales with no context, and it's it's great. It's doing all the heavy lifting. It doesn't really matter who that man was. You're gonna enjoy the mermaid. Like Yes. But but he's a little problematic. And I just to be clear, I don't mean problematic in like the Twitter way. I mean mm. he made himself a very big problem for basically everyone who ever knew him. <laughs> Did he really? Oh, this is gonna be a fun one then. It's he's fascinating and it's kind of funny. Uh he is 
Tracy, a shining example of an artist that you would not want to know in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So by way of introduction, I'm going to read you this quote about our boy Hans. In Anderson as a novelist, famous philosopher, poet, and social critic, Soren Kierkegaard Mm. said... Anderson is, quote, a possibility of a personality wrapped up in a web of arbitrary moods and moving through an allegaic duodecimal scale of almost echoless dying tones, just as easily roused as subdued, who, in order to become a personality, needs a strong life development, end quote. That is the sickest burn. I'm going to be real with you. I don't understand it. It didn't. I don't get it. Okay, so a duodecimal scale is, I had to look this up, a chromatic scale including sharps and flats, and it's associated with a lament or an elegy more than like an ordinary scale. So it's Uh basically like this sad boy has no personality. He needs to take some time to develop one. (laughs) Okay, now I get it. That's so funny. He's just a moody, sad boy. (laughs) Okay, so... <laughs> that's really that's okay now that yeah i get it that's harsh all right i like it get wrecked hans yeah. <laughs> okay dash kierkegaard <laughs> <laughs> okay so hans christian anderson was born on april 2nd 1805 which is not last week but the week before at the time of this episode's released 218 mm-hmm. years ago which makes him an aries if you dear listener care about that end of episode we know everything we need to know we get it he's a sad boy aries wrap it up (laughs) he's a sad boy aries who wrote the little mermaid done okay though a number of his tales were actually published in america before his native country thanks to the riverside magazine for young people he is actually from odense denmark i know i said that wrong and i'm so sorry You might actually know that fact, uh, that he was born in Denmark, because that is one of everyone's favorite facts when they're being racist about the Disney live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. The idea being like, she can't be played by a black woman because this story is native to Denmark where everyone's white. (sighs) And that is full of so much racist there's so much unsaid in that be yeah yeah that's just absolute trash and i actually am not a huge fan of the disney live action remakes because i don't love that they're recycling their ip just knowing that people will throw money at it Mm -hmm. but i am excited because halle bailey the actress who they cast to play the little mermaid who is a black woman has a beautiful singing voice and they so Mm -hmm. often don't cast singers for singing parts in these live action remakes and she also looks like a gosh darn disney princess every day yeah so hey don't be racist mermaids didn't exist uh so they can be anyone (laughs) because the other the other argument is like mermaids can't be black because that is melanin in the skin and mermaids live under the ocean so they wouldn't need melanin and everyone's like i'm sorry did you just try to put racist science on fictional mythological fictional creature fish creatures 
here's the thing. If we're going to be upset about anything in the movie, it's that they didn't cast a drag queen to play Ursula. And Melissa McCarthy's great. She's done tributes to Divine in the past, and Divine was the inspiration for Ursula in the first place. But come on. You had the opportunity right there. There are so many fabulous drag queens who are such good singers who could have done that part. I know. And we're going to talk actually more about Divine later in the episode. Uh, and that's for you and for me, because of course we are. But I love Divine. It is such a bummer. And I imagine that that wasn't even on the table. Not the least reason being that a lot of states where this movie will play and make a lot of money now are actively passing laws so that people can be violent towards drag queens. <laughs> yes. See also our last episode. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I titled this section Daddy Hans the First. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> so our boy Hans's father, also named Hans Anderson, died when our main character was about 11 years old. It was 1816. His mother, Anne Marie, was left on her own and remarried two years later. Uh, she was illiterate, notably, uh, mm. because her son later became a writer. She also was eventually an alcoholic, which is very sad. My favorite little tidbit about his upbringing is that Hans's grandfather convinced his father that he was related to nobility. And then that kind of evolved into speculation that our young author was actually the illegitimate son of King Christian VIII, and he was not <laughs> at all. Okay, so our boy Hans's grandfather convinced his father that Hans was related to royalty, both, I suppose, implying... Like, it, it sounds like implying your child is not yours, but don't worry... He is the king's. I think it went more like grandfather said to his son, we're related to nobility. And then okay. that man passed it down to him or tried to at least pass it down to you, our boy Hans. And then the wider public was like, oh, no, he was the illegitimate son of a king. Okay. And that's okay. going to become relevant a little bit later. But he was not the illegitimate son, <laughs> okay. son of a king. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so even though his mother remarried they were not very wealthy and interestingly Hans had to support himself from a very young age he worked as an apprentice to a weaver and then later a tailor and at 14 he moved to Copenhagen to seek employment as an actor the Royal Danish Theater accepted him for his beautiful soprano voice but then puberty hit and his voice mm. dropped there were also stories that he wanted to pursue ballet, but our sweet soft boy was very tall and very gangly, so that mm. was never on the table. The director of the Royal Danish Theater at the time, Jonas Collin, who is described as his, quote, tough but compassionate benefactor, took a liking to him and then got King Frederick VI to pay for Hans to go to grammar school. What are you, like, okay, so he was never a great student, but by 1822, he published his first story, The Ghost at Palnatoke's Grave. Again, circling back, his benefactor got a king mm -hmm. to throw money at this little boy so he could do school. That's amazing. There are a few people in history that's happened with, and it's like, 
Can you just imagine? One, I mean, just the connections, but two, then the pressure? I'd take the pressure. I'd love a monarch's money. I'd go back to school for a monarch's money. Well, yeah, if a monarch was paying me to do it, I'd go back to school, but probably for not much else, to be honest. And I, it just always seems so casual throughout this story every time he gets big money from fancy people. And I'm like, how is this hap- How? How is this happening? I would say he must be so charming, but we established very immediately in the story that he's not. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll flow in and out on how we feel about his charm, I think. You're never going to change your opinion, but other people will. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So there are stories of Hans having a really rough go of it in school. He described those years as some of the worst of his life, though, as you're about to learn... Hans is very dramatic, so, like, you know, I imagine all the years of his life were the worst years of his life when it was a useful story. <laughs> I I know some people like that now, so, yes, absolutely, I imagine he's one of them. At one of his schools, he lived in the schoolmaster's home, and during this time, he was abused, and his writing was shamed by staff. I'm not actually sure that this behavior was specifically directed at him because, mm. as we know, schools during that time in Europe were not known for their gentle approach to caring for children. This is true. In October of 2012, a Danish paper published that a local historian discovered a previously unknown writing of Hans Christian Andersen's, and it is now considered to be his first fairy tale. Hmm. It was written during the 1820s while he was still in school and dedicated to one of his benefactors, of which he had more than a few. The story is called The Tallow Candle, and it's, wait for it, about a candle that did not feel appreciated. (laughs) Oh, Our boy is a sad, soft, awkward queer boy who was very dramatic and had very big feelings, and I have a quote from this story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Yes, thus it was formed and cultivated when it, with the best, the brightest expectations, threw itself into life. There it met so many curious fellow creatures whom it took up with, for it wanted to get to know about life, and maybe, thereby, to find the place where it best belonged. But the candle had far too much faith in the world. The world only cared about itself, and not at all about the tallow candle— since it could not understand what use it could be and therefore tried to use it to its own advantage, but handled it in the wrong way. End quote. I gotta say, it feels like something we might write for this podcast. A sad candle thinking about its place in the world. It's a little willing and fable. It's very willing and fable, and I do feel particularly equipped to drag him as I maybe deserve to be dragged in a similar way. <laughs> But I would not describe you as a sad, a sad, dramatic boy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, parentheses, affectionate. Like, I, I, I think there is more to you and you have a very pleasant and wonderful personality that anyone who knows you would describe you that way. They would not say, here's this obscure musical scale that actually represents her. Thank you. Yeah, see, I'm interested in his sad writing. It's when he's like making his emotions other people's problems in real life that he's kind mm-hmm. of a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. So kind of to prove that the through lines of his writing, I also pulled a quote from his later collected works. Very similar theme. Quote, there was a proud teapot, 
Proud of being made of porcelain, proud of its long spout and its broad handle, it had something in front of it and behind it. The spout was in front and the handle behind, and that was what it talked about. But it didn't mention its lid, for it was cracked and it was riveted and full of defects. And we don't talk about our defects. Other people do that. The cups, the cream pitcher, the sugar bowl. In fact, the whole tea service thought much more about the defects in the lid and talked more about it than about the sound handle and the distinguished bout. The teapot knew this. End quote. I mean, if that's not projecting your insecurities onto the whole world, I don't know what is. (laughs) Of all the themes in his works, the theme of the outsider And just this inherent wrongness is one that I found the most poignant while I was doing this research for this episode in particular. Previously, I mostly considered his focus to be on the feeling of longing. Mm -hmm. And those ideas are not unrelated, right? Like longing to be a part of a group really aligns with that idea of being the outsider. But longing for romantic love is kind of the way that I looked into this. And that is very different from being, from longing to be loved just for who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, his way of interacting with others throughout his life has caused some people to speculate that he was on the autism spectrum. Uh, there are a few grad papers that examine the possibility from one angle or another, and I'm not a mental health professional, and I wouldn't presume to diagnose him, but I will say this boy's social life was pretty hard when he was young, and by hard, I do refer back to he had big feelings, and he didn't always have a great way of dealing with them, especially not with others. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, something that always aligns with the experience of being autistic? No, but people are making some really interesting connections that we don't really have a way of proving because he's a historical figure, but could go some of the distance to describe why he had difficulty interfacing with a really rigid social system. Yeah, it makes sense. And it goes along with what we talked about with Radcliffe Hall, where we can speculate as much as we want. And I think it's important to have those conversations. But at the end of the day, there's only so much you can put onto a person when they didn't have the words themselves to describe what they were feeling or experiencing. Exactly. So it's 1829. Hans had success with a short story that involves a talking cat. That was kind of a noteworthy situation for him. Mm -hmm. He writes a piece for the theater, he publishes some poetry, and then in 1833, the king gives him a small travel grant, and he has a jaunt around Europe. So, you know, he is not a starving artist, this guy. No, that is incredible. Yeah, I'm very happy for him, actually. I love it when artists have money. (laughs) So he would travel all throughout his life and published a total of five travel books that are pretty much forgotten today. No one really thinks about him as a travel writer. During this particular round of exploration of Europe, he specifically visited Italy, and he was inspired to write his first novel, The Improvisateur. I hope I said that correctly. I actually happen to know he didn't really know how to say it either, so (laughs) I apologize for nothing. (laughs) It was published in 1835, and folks loved it. Ooh, good for him. So, like I said, we think of him as being famous for writing fairy tales, but he wrote plays, poems, travelogues, and novels. And he would have a 
prolific career. He published anywhere from 156 to 168 tales during his lifetime, depending on the source that you look at. His fairy tales have been translated into more than 125 different languages. Some of his most famous works that I think most of our listeners will recognize at least one of include The Princess and the Pea, The Ugly Duckling, Mm -hmm. The Emperor's New Suit, The Red Shoes, The Brave Tin Soldier, Thumbelina, The Snow Queen, and of course, The Little Mermaid. The majority of these famous stories would appear in three booklets, the first of which was called Fairy Tales Told for Children, First Collection. These three volumes were published between 1835 and 1837 and were especially interesting specifically because of the origins of the stories he was telling. Stories like The Princess and the Pea and The Emperor's New Clothes were based on stories from his childhood or older stories collected from around the world. The article His Dark Materials by Michael Booth for The Independent says, But unlike the brothers Grimm, who were merely collectors of folktales, the majority of Anderson's 156 tales were entirely of his own invention. We're throwing around the word fairy tale a lot in this episode. But consider that the Brothers Grimm published their first book in 1812. And yes, Charles Perrault and other writers predated these three gentlemen, the Brothers Grimm and Anderson. Mm -hmm. But the average person's knowledge of fairy tales, people today, pretty much begins and ends with either Hans Christian Andersen or Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. Absolutely. Here's a chonky quote from Wikipedia that appeared in a whole lot of places across the internet. (laughs) Quote, Danish reviews of the first two booklets first appeared in 1836 and were not enthusiastic. The critics disliked the chatty, informal style and immorality that flew in the face of their expectations. Children's literature was meant to educate rather than to amuse. The critics discouraged Anderson from pursuing this type of style. Anderson believed that he was working against the critics' preconceived notions about fairy tales, and he temporarily returned to novel writing. The critics' reaction was so severe that Anderson waited a full year before publishing his third installment. Now, Anderson would continue to publish travel logs, theater, and of course, more fairy tales throughout the course of his career, and he lived to find fame in his own lifetime, which is a feat unto itself, so often you and I talk about people who are only famous after their death. Mm-hmm. Even when returning to writing for the theater didn't go particularly well, he was still well-known and later very well-received for his fairy tales. The monarchy of Denmark, as well as numerous royal families outside of the country, were his patrons. The English novelist Mary Russell Milford was, quote, completely disgusted by the way Anderson socially maneuvered. She says, quote, He uses fame merely as a key to open drawing room doors, a ladder to climb to high places. So people didn't receive his fairy tales very well in the beginning. And this is purely speculation on my part, but I will say Mm -hmm. back in that time, people weren't as eager to entertain children as they are now. That wasn't a priority. Right, right. Educating children was a priority. Teaching them how to behave in society was a priority. So having a fairy tale that is informal, trying to appeal to children, 
probably not as desirable as it is now. We make we have an entire movie industry centered around children only. <laughs> oh, movies, books, games, YouTube channels, etc. Absolutely. I don't officially know what turned the tides on people liking his fairy tales more, but we do know that entertaining children really does pay off. So, <laughs> mhm. Yeah, he was on to something. All right, now we're getting into my section that I titled Spill the Tea. Ugh, let's spill it. In that article, His Dark Materials by Michael Booth, which is one of my favorites, uh, please do give it a read. He really goes in on our lead boy. Booth says, quote, He was a figure often at odds with the dreamy man-child of popular perception. The Anderson that emerges from his diaries, almanac, and letters is racked with sexual confusion, driven by fame, obsessed with his own reputation, and tormented by insecurities. He was the prototype drama queen, a pathological narcissist with a colorful portfolio of neuroses and phobias. He was afraid of dogs, would not eat pork for fear of contracting trichinae, and when he traveled, he carried a nine-meter rope for fear of finding himself trapped by fire. He positioned a note beside his bed every time he slept, which read, I only appear to be sleeping, in case anyone thought he was dead and buried him alive. The Danes tend to gloss over some of the more problematic aspects of Anderson's character. He is, after all, the sacred cash cow of Danish culture and tourism. They are still deep in denial over his relationships with men, for instance. The fact that Anderson regularly expressed his dislike for his fellow countrymen also tends to be forgotten. No nation has more prejudice, I think, than the Danes. To deride and sneer, to watch for the weak points in our neighbors, that is our evil nature, he once wrote. And this was far from a one-off rant. In another letter to a friend while traveling, he railed, I wish my eyes may never again see the home which can only see my shortcomings. The Danes can be evil, cold, satanic, a people well-suited to those damp, moldy green islands. This whitewashing of Anderson is misguided. After all, rarely has one man's life and work been so intertwined. It is precisely his many personal conflicts, his social and sexual alienation, his doubts, resentments, and longings that give his stories their distinctive, troubling edge. End quote. Okay, I see why you like that article. That is an incredible quote that really, really well describes this man. Go off, Michael Booth. I think he wrote a book, so, you know. Yeah, and if he hasn't, he needs to, but yeah, probably did. It, I I get such a clear picture of Hans Christian Andersen, the idea of those anxieties and that fear, especially in a time where it, the mentality of dealing with fear was suck it up and deal with it, not, you know, not therapy and treatment and understanding and empathy. So what, the, the I appear to be sleeping one really. That one really shook shook me. I saw your face. Your eyes got really big. <laughs> yeah. I feel like yeah. there are there are a lot of instances where a little empathy and and uh, well trained listening by a, an actual therapist might have helped this man. I also do think he could have probably used a little dose of suck it up, Buttercup, mm. which I know is not cool to say anymore. But like, I uh, there are some moments. We will see where I do think someone else should have maybe said, like, hey, 
your mental health is actually your responsibility. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. I have a picture of him. This is like the most famous picture of Hans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is a sepia toned image, uh, an old photograph. And our boy Hans is the subject of the image. He is sitting facing to the to the left, if you're viewing it, to his right. Nice mid-Victorian's coat with a, a cravat kind of bow tie situation. He's got... Uh, the bow tie's angled toward the camera, too. Yeah, it is. And I wonder <laughs> if that was for the picture or if that was the style. Not sure. He has a slightly receding hairline, lovely curls coming down <laughs> on his head. <laughs> I think they look really nice. They look like nice soft curls. And then um, he's got a nose that I appreciate because he's got a big nose. This man, his physicality, the fact that he's sitting and I think it looks like his suit is like coming up on his neck a little bit just because it's like bigger. It makes mm -hmm. him look a little bit like a turtle. Interesting. Oh, I can see that. I was thinking he looked, um, he, he looked, he looked small and, and frail, but not in a breakaway, just, just, you talked earlier, kind of lanky, a little bit gangly. He, he's got a kind of just kind looking smile on his face. Like it's, it's actually a rather pleasant image. It's a man I would, I would be inclined to sit down and listen to. I go back and forth. My relationship with Hans Christian Andersen is complicated, <laughs> but <laughs> that is almost nothing to do with his appearance. There is one detail of his appearance, though, that sticks out in this photo that I want people to remember for later, and that's that his, I think it's either his chest hair or neck hair, but it's sticking up out of the collar of his shirt in like these big, what I think are like maybe white or blonde curls. Oh, yeah. I just thought there was a shadow. No, that's a lot of hair. And to be clear, unexpected. you can groom your body hair however you want, but specifically the grooming of his body hair is going to come up. <laughs> Oof. Okay, so fun foreshadowing. remember this. Noted. Okay. The next portion of this episode is all broken down by who Hans Christian Andersen was in love with at the time. Ooh, oh, fun. You know right. I love to do that. Yeah. Okay, we're going to start off with Edvard Collin and the Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. In the 1998 book, My Dear Boy, Gay Love Letters Through the Centuries, Richter Norton explains that the Little Mermaid was, quote, written when Edvard Collin decided to get married. And Anderson displayed, quote, himself as the sexual outsider who lost his prince to another. Mm. Edvard Cullen, the son of Hans Christian Andersen's longtime benefactor, Jonas Cullen. Ooh. Spicy. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's like a forbidden love on multiple levels. Yeah, I don't know how his dad felt about it. Okay. Though they began as friends, Anderson pined after this man. He wrote poetry for him. Hmm. In a letter... Anderson wrote, he said, quote, I long for you. Yes, this moment I long for you as if you were a lovely girl. No one have I wanted to thrash as much as you, but neither has anyone been so loved so much by me as you. My sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. 
Wow. He just out and out said it. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. It's very bold. Yeah. Colin, who seemed to prefer women, wrote in his own memoir, quote, I found myself unable to respond to this love, and this caused the author much suffering. Mm. He wrote about that in his memoir, which I guess is okay because he's like, oh, no, I'm not gay. That's true. That's true. But that still feels very out and out. I wonder how well known it was at this point that Hans Christian Andersen had feelings for men or if that was something that was kept secret until after his death. You know, I really hunted for that, like for Mm -hmm. a, a way to get a handle on how much wider society knew and I don't know. We, I don't have a picture of, like, was the circle he was operating in? Did they all know? But maybe publications and readers didn't. I'm not sure. And, in fact, a few articles that I read really emphasized that the Danish government kind of tried to keep it quiet that he was a gay man after his death mm. when, you know, talking about how wonderful he is, you can tour his home kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So when Colin got married in 1836 to a woman named Henriette, Hans ran away to the island of Finn where he would work on the story of the Little Mermaid. Hans wrote Henriette and did kind of try to stop their marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Colin called Anderson, quote, a worthy friend in an 1836 letter. And then Anderson wrote back, why do you call me your worthy friend? I don't want to be worthy. That is the most insipid, boring word you could use. Any fool can be called worthy. I have hotter blood than you and half of Copenhagen. Edward, I feel so infuriated by this loathsome weather. I also long for you, to shake you, to see your hysterical laughter, to be able to walk away insulted and not come back home to you for two whole days. Wow. Okay. The picture of him being a very dramatic, very emotional person is is becoming clear. Uh, It's also that time period where you romanticize being very emotional. Yeah, yeah. Part of your fantasy is being so angry that you leave and you don't come home for two days. That's part of the fantasy. (laughs) I find that so interesting. So do you want to give us a quick description of Edvard and Henriette Collin? Oh, yes. Okay. So this is uh, a painting. This looks like it's probably some kind of oil painting. And on the left is Henriette, and on the right is Edvard. Um, And Henriette has, I'm going to guess, yeah, this looks very 1830. She's got the hair parted in the middle uh, in a bun in the back of her head, dark, uh, looks like either very dark brown or black hair, beautiful big uh, brown eyes. It's very that big eyes, small lips sort of standard of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, she's wearing some kind of off the shoulder dress, which you're only getting the very top of in this picture. And next to her is Edvard with a kind of strawberry blonde looking hair. Um, a, I know I'm talking about noses a lot, but a really cool nose where it's like long and thin. And- I was gonna say so many people in this history who are lusted after have really prominent noses yeah it's a cool nose it's very long and narrow but um you could tell if he turned his head to the side it would be it would protrude a lot like it's a very cool nose and he looks like he has blue eyes and he's got one of those beards where it goes from sideburns to mutton chops to chin strap all around (laughs) so it's like there's like a circle of hair around his head which is also parted very extremely on one side of his head and combed over 
Um, but they seem like a lovely, very handsome couple. They look like a nice little couple. And I don't know if, if Edvard and Hans ever hooked up. I hope they did. I hope so, too. But based on Hans's letters, I'm thinking they probably didn't. Yeah, Hans was really lusting but you know he would write about it he'd be like i long to feel you again or it's just (laughs) he's just putting a lot on edvard and almost to the point where it's edvard is it's could be irrelevant to the idea of himself oh girl the way the people he lusts after are irrelevant (laughs) 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 okay so It has been a point for a long time that the Little Mermaid is considered an allegory for living as a closeted member of the gay community. And this is the story that inspired the Little Mermaid. I don't know if y'all have read the Little Mermaid recently, Mm -hmm. like the real OG Little Mermaid, but it is both like and distinctly unlike the Disney movie. (laughs) It's sad. That's the big thing. It ends With her turning into sea foam. Yeah. So, okay. So, in the book, in the short story, she, mermaids, reach sexual maturity, I guess, at 15, and then they go to get to see the surface. Before that, they don't get to visit the surface and see the humans. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of like the beginning of where we see, like, this allegory for queerness. Like, you have that awakening and you get to, like, realize what you like. You know, you get to see Mm -hmm. it. And this idea that the mermaid has to sell her voice to be with the person that she wants to be with. Allegory for how you have to be closeted as a queer person. You don't get to talk about it. And then she has to go away from her family and she can't ever see them again if she wants to be with the person she loves. Just to be clear, in the story, when she gives her voice to the spooky evil sea witch, her tongue is cut out of her mouth. She doesn't, like, lose the ability to make sound. She loses the ability to speak. Oh, I did forget that part. It's really punk rock. Um, And the sea witch isn't She's not some villain who is trying to get the mermaid to go up there so that she can then steal her voice and use it to steal the man. The sea witch never gets involved again after Mm -hmm. she sells the little mermaid the ability to turn into a human. She also sells the knife to the sisters, but she's not the reason that the prince almost ends, well, actually does end up with someone else. Mm-hmm. The witch, not involved. She's not secretly trying to foil this mermaid. She's just a witch under the ocean. <laughs> She's just doing her, her her day job, working hard. And the thing that really stuck out to me this time that I read The Little Mermaid is that the mermaid wants an immortal soul like a person has. Mm. And to get the immortal soul, she must acquire the love of a man Hmm. and that is kind of murky in the story like does she love the prince or does she just need his love but that is distinctly different than i want to go to the surface because i love this man yes and that kind of goes back into that like i wanted an identity i want to define myself i want a soul mermaids don't have that and I will find it by being with this other person, that is a much clearer allegory for queerness to me. Yes. So a quote from the story, 
No, said the old woman, unless a man were to love you so much that you were more to him than his father or mother, and if all his thoughts and all his love were fixed upon you, and the priest placed his right hand in yours, and he promised to be true to you here and hereafter, then his soul would glide into your body, and you would obtain a share in the future happiness of mankind. He would give a soul to you and retain his own as well, but this can never happen. Your fish's tail, which amongst us is considered so beautiful, is thought on earth to be quite ugly. They do not know any better, and they think it is necessary to have two stout props, which they call legs, in order to be handsome. It's really interesting, the idea of what you have, which to many others in your group is beautiful, is so ugly to the rest of the world, knowing his history of queerness. Yeah. And not even just his history of queerness, just his history of always feeling like the outsider, which Mm -hmm. is inextricably linked to his queerness, I imagine, but also separate in other ways. Examining this as an allegory for queerness in general is really compelling and makes the story very personal for a lot of people. But examining it specifically as him writing as himself has more layers to it than that. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, And it's interesting because when she gets legs in the story, she feels like she's walking around on knives. Ooh. And she's willing to suffer that to be with this man, but also to get an immortal soul. Like, that is the detail that is so interesting. Right, right. Well, and and in that it says his soul will go into you. So you have to essentially this idea of becoming one with someone else. And then through that, there's part of me that wonders... If he is writing this with the idea of if I love someone so wholly and completely, does that now make it moral? And thus, can I get into heaven? As opposed to the idea of if you're a man who loves a man, that's immoral, you're going to hell. Mm, That's a really interesting point. Like, is the love pure enough? Mm -hmm. So the prince treats her kind of like a pet uh he has her sleep outside his door on cushions and there's just this like fun little idea that he just has this mute girl that he shows around and then he genuinely falls in love with someone else and the witch after okay so the little mermaid sisters then sell their hair to the witch so mm-hmm. that the witch will give them a knife that will, if the Little Mermaid kills the prince with, she will be able to come back to the ocean and be with her family. But the mermaid decides not to kill the prince. And some people say it's not as death by suicide Some people say it is a little more, but she dies. Mm-hmm. Because she won't kill the prince. But instead of turning to seafoam, which is what the witch promised her would happen, and which happens to all mermaids when they die. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, when mermaids die, they turn into sea foam because none of them have a soul. Is uh, baked into the story whether she went off to go be a human or not. <laughs> right. She actually kind of turns into a sylph. Let me quote the story. Quote, Among the daughters of the air... 
answered one of them. A mermaid has not an immortal soul, nor can she obtain one unless she wins the love of a human being. On the power of another hangs her eternal destiny. But the daughters of the air, although they do not possess an immortal soul, can, by their good deeds, procure one for themselves. We fly to warm countries and cool the sultry air that destroys mankind with the pestilence. We carry the perfume of the flowers to spread health and restoration. After we have striven for three hundred years to all the good in our power, we receive an immortal soul and take part in the happiness of mankind. You, poor little mermaid, have tried with your whole heart to do as we are doing. You have suffered and endured and raised yourself to the spirit world by your good deeds. And now, by striving for three hundred years in the same way, you may obtain an immortal soul." So even though she couldn't find love, she tried to be good, and now she has this other way of getting a soul. Mm-hmm. It's not as sad as people make it out to be when they delete that part of the story. I did, in my memory. I just thought, I genuinely, if you would ask me, I would have said the story ends with her turning into seafoam. I suspect some translations maybe yeet the part mm. of the story that I just read, because no one that I asked remembered that part. No. So it... it Hans Christian Andersen was religious, and you can see it all over this story. It's very Christian, this idea mm -hmm. that you try to be good, you try to be good. And it is kind of, to, to my mind, and correct me if you don't see this, but like the idea is that he tried to be good, and he wanted to have this queer relationship, and it didn't work out. But still, at the end of the day, he was a good person, so mm -hmm. he can still make it to heaven. Yes, I think he is not viewing his queerness as essentially an immoral sin and you can see that in the writing a little bit i want to also kind of hit the morality thing over the head because the last part of the story is like all of a sudden the story remembers that it's a morality tale for children out of nowhere <laughs> that's so true yeah yeah so after the portion i just read quote after 300 years Thus shall we float into the kingdom of heaven, said she, and we may even get there sooner, whispered one of her companions. Unseen, we can enter the houses of men where there are children, and for every day on which we find a good child who is the joy of his parents and deserves their love, our time of probation is shortened. The child does not know when we fly through the room that we smile with joy at his good conduct, for we can count one year less of our three hundred years." But when we see a naughty or wicked child, we shed tears of sorrow, and for every tear, a day is added to our time of trial. <laughs> so if the kids are good, if you're, if you're a well-behaved good child, you're helping all of these poor souls get into heaven sooner. But if you're a bad kid, you're making them wait longer? Yes. Oh, my God. Good children were not mentioned before in no, the story. No, it really is an add-on. <laughs> And before we get out of Little Mermaid territory into his other loves, I do want to kind of double back since Tracy and I know this story pretty well. But, and this is something that really compels me, intertwined across the centuries by this Little Mermaid story, lyricist Howard Ashman came along and he had an incredibly profound influence on Disney's Little Mermaid movie and Disney films as a whole. The playwright and lyricist behind The Little Shop of Horrors, and also mm -hmm. an openly gay man who died of AIDS in 1991, Ashman was 
the big push for Disney animated films to have full musical style Broadway numbers. This this theatrical mm-hmm. style that we associate with Disney now came from this man. Okay. And being openly queer with AIDS in 1991 was mm-hmm. no small feat. Not at all. He produced The Little Mermaid, cast actors, held meetings with animators, wrote dialogue and music, and pushed to have Ursula based on famous drag queen Divine. Along with his writing partner, Alan Menken, Ashman is one of the reasons that Disney villains are so boldly queer-coded. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the Beauty and the Beast film, which is the last film he was able to work on before passing... Disney included the tribute, quote, to our friend Howard Ashman, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul. We will be forever grateful. Hmm. And that, to me, is is a really wonderful example of how stories can tie people together across the centuries. Absolutely, yes. To know that Hans Christian Andersen was a queer man who was always pining for love And then an openly queer man came along and kind of made his story the famous movie the world over that it became is really moving. It is. And and to continue that legacy is so powerful, especially when Ashman did it in a time where it wasn't easy for him. It's not like today where you could – it's not even necessarily easy today, but it's easier now than it was in 1991 – to, to jump in and say, hey, we need to have this representation. Hey, we need to include these things in the story. It, it, it's really moving and really powerful. Okay, now we're on to Heinrich Stamp. Anderson had a friendship with the Danish aristocrat Heinrich Stamp, and the relationship became passionate. There are no diary entries from this period between 1843 and 1844, but historians from the Hans Christian Andersen Center reference the writing from his personal almanac and this Mm. is a book that's referenced a lot i'm guessing it's his like date book but i don't know because this boy writes in that thing unlike any date book i've ever heard of yeah interesting there are phrases about heinrich that include things like quote december 27th 1843 my beloved heinrich and march 4th 1844 visited h he was here later he caressed me oh in a letter he wrote quote my darling heinrich writing to you seems a little odd seeing as i could just as well be with you speak with you and shake your hand whenever i wish however it is easier at least for me to express myself in writing In this way, I am not bound by the multitude of tiny considerations which are necessary when speaking face-to-face, even with you. I have often heard that the English are afflicted with the spleen. I know little about this illness, except that it is an oddity, but a grievance just the same, and that it often robs people of their life. I myself suffer from something quite similar to this, which is why I was so unpleasant towards you today, impatient about waiting, when instead I could have been of some assistance." You, the person I often believe that I would give up my life for. Talk to me, you often say. Yes, that is what I wish to do. What I, lonely as always, must do this evening. Uh, The first thing I picked up was basically the idea of it's easier for me to write. There's too much to think about talking face to face. That quote has been used 
to support the theory that he was on the autism spectrum. I would also point out he was famously anxious. Mm-hmm. There, there's definitely some kind of mental health and or neurodiversity happening here. To what extent and to what diagnosis, that's not for us to say. In the meantime, would you like to describe a picture of the Danish aristocrat Heinrich Stamp? Yes. So this is another old photograph. This looks more like one of those like tin type style uh, images. He is a man we get from about mid thigh up in this photo. He is looking off to his left, which is to the right of the image. He's got a, a suit on, his hand resting on what looks like the, the mantle of like a fancy clock or fireplace or something like that. And um, he also has tight curls to a, his, his hair. He's a little bit older, probably in his maybe 50s, I would guess. And he's just got kind of this benign smile as he's looking off to past the camera to the right of the image. And there's something in his, his right hand. Maybe a cane? Maybe. Or, or a pipe? My favorite thing about this image is if you combine it with the image of Hans Christian Andersen, and I think they're both older in these pictures, but you get the gist. If you combine it with these, these two guys are just normal guys. Mm-hmm. And so often queer representation is like the hottest gay couple you've ever seen. Yes. Or like hot young twink meets older sexy bear. And these are just two guys. <laughs> It's just two guys. And I feel like both of these men, I look at these images and I'm like, I've passed that guy on the street. Oh, yeah. Big time. Okay. Now, the Grand Duke, Carl Alexander. Ooh. Do we know what happened between Hans and Heinrich? Oh, our boy never ended up with anyone long term. Okay. But we don't know the details of why they kind of separated? No, Okay. We've got, you know, he caressed me on this date, but it's not as detailed with him as with some other people. And it doesn't appear that this relationship was as public as some of them naturally tended to be. Okay. Okay. So Maggie Bosca, writing for Pink News, the, quote, world's largest LGBTQ plus media brand, explains Hans, quote, wrote deeply emotional letters to Carl Alexander, the hereditary Grand Duke of Saxe-Weimar-Eisenach, which is a state of the German Empire. In one letter, Anderson described loving Alexander as a, quote, man can only love the noblest and best. And he felt the other man was, quote, more ardent, more affectionate toward him after one meeting. He wrote in another letter, quote, I quite love the young duke. He is the first of all princes that I really find attractive, end quote. In Mm. his diary, Anderson wrote, The hereditary Grand Duke walked arm in arm with me across the courtyard of the castle to my room, kissed me lovingly, asked me always to love him, though he was just an ordinary person, asked me to stay with him this winter, fell asleep with the melancholy, happy feeling that I was the guest of this strange prince at his castle and loved by him. It is like a fairy tale. It's giving Bridgerton. Yes, yes. I'm also just shocked with like, I'm used to seeing the ideas of queer writing in Anne Lister, who was alive at vaguely the same time, and hers was coded in her diary so that no one could decipher it. Radcliffe Hall was different. She was very publicly out and proud, but it also wasn't illegal for women to be together, where it was for men. So to see it so plainly in his diary like this is a little shocking. And... Yeah, I wonder if some of it's the audacity of thinking your diaries aren't going to be read. 
Mm-hmm. But also being so obsessed with your own fame and reputation, you'd think he would be would believe that they would be. I know. I was surprised, especially because the Grand Duke was married. So they they must have had either some kind of agreement in that marriage or the Grand Duke just had extracurricular activities going on. <laughs> yeah. And this is usually considered to be Anderson's like fairy tale romance. Mm-hmm. He's always described as Hans Christian Anderson's prince. Uh, the Duke's wife, Sophie, was a princess from the Netherlands. Like These are wealthy, powerful people. Yeah. And because of his lower class upbringing, Anderson seemed to believe that he wasn't good enough for the Duke. And this was a time in Europe in which the introduction of democracy and monarchy were greatly at odds. Mm-hmm. On September 14th, 1846, he wrote to his friend, the Grand Duke, quote, I will do my uttermost to prove myself worthy of you, for I know that the soul that lives and moves within you will send new rays of sunshine over the country that I love as a second fatherland. I will also do everything to encourage love and interest for the place where I have been received as if I were an inhabitant of that country by its prince and leading men. I want so very much that everyone should love what I love. You, my noble, beloved Grand Duke, are new proof to me of the nobility of men, which is ever more dear to me and in which I must always believe. Because of you, I can love and understand what is noble in princes who are much too severely criticized nowadays. The way this man writes about the people he is in love with. It's, you get the idea of, okay, yeah, here's where Prince Charming's come from. This makes sense. And the way that he writes his love letters is so, it's so clear that he's like the fairy tale guy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He is metamorphosing every person he has ever loved into the fairy tale version of themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They're not even real people. They're just perfect idols for him to wish he could be with, with the safety of knowing he never will because they're married or Mm -hmm. uninterested or whatever the the barrier is. It frees him to have those thoughts while knowing he doesn't have to suffer the consequences of experiencing it. Yes, 100%. You hit it on the nose. And that quote where he says, like, I want the Grand Duke to love me, or he says, the Grand Duke says to him, will you love me even though I'm an ordinary man? I I read that and I think about it a lot because I'm like, you're not an ordinary man. And then I read the way Hans wrote about him. Mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, it's a will you love me even though I'm a mortal, not a fairy tale character. Yeah. Do you want to describe the Grand Duke for us? Look at that mustache. Look at the mustache. He has such a good mustache. It is big, bold, curled up at the ends, if I'm looking at it correctly. Oh, yeah. That thing's waxed within an inch of its life. Amazing. So this image is in black and white. It's a photograph. Um, He's in full royal military garb and um, facing very stoically at the camera. It's got harsh lighting. The left side of the image is very dark and the, the right side is much lighter um, and he's a little bit older in this image again probably 40s to mid 50s somewhere in there I'm really bad at guessing ages yeah unfortunately I couldn't match like the pictures to the actual ages it's right you know each person has like one hero picture of them <laughs> Yeah, but interestingly, uh, Anderson doesn't seem to have a very particular type. 
and yet also in some ways does. Thank you. Thank you for saying that because that is perfect for my next person. Jenny Lind, the Swedish Nightingale. Ooh. Bisexual icon Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah. <laughs> Having met or at least become close in 1843, Andersen was infatuated with the famous opera singer Jenny Lind. If you aren't familiar with Jenny Lind, she is the real woman that Rebecca Ferguson played in The Greatest Showman, who sings Never Enough. Uh, and yes, that means that P.T. Barnum, who we hate on this podcast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is only one degree of separation from Hans Christian Andersen. Isn't it weird the things that happen, and we talk about it all the time, but the things that happen in parallel in history or or within similar time frames in history, it's it's wild. Insanity. So while Hans Christian Andersen was writing about The Little Mermaid, P.T. Barnum was showing fake mermaid remains to the public. You're right! (laughs) (laughs) So she was one of the most highly regarded singers of the 19th century. She was a world-famous soprano. She toured her native Sweden, all across Europe, and the United States. In September of 1845, Anderson wrote that he allowed himself to hope that they could be together, despite knowing Mm. better. He frustrates himself to the point of, quote, feeling sick at heart, and he adds, quote, she toasts me like she would a brother. Mm. This is a crucial detail, because he once proposed to her via letter, and she rejected him, explaining that she did, in fact, see him as a brother. Oh, oh, ouch. In the autobiography, The True Story of My Life, or The Fairy Tale of My Life, depending on the translation that you use, that was published in 1847, Hans Christian Andersen says, quote, Through Jenny Lind, I first became sensible of the holiness of art. Through her, I learned that one must forget oneself in the service of the supreme. No books, no men have had a more ennobling influence upon me as a poet than Jenny Lind. Mm -hmm. His story, The Nightingale, is said to be inspired by Jenny Lind, and this story gave her the widely used nickname, The Swedish Nightingale. Oh, so that was because of Hans Christian Andersen's story that she got the nickname. Mm -hmm. That's cool. There's a very funny anecdote from either his diary or his almanac where he talks about being with her in this house and they hear a ghost play the piano (laughs) and he was very afraid of ghosts and so he would (laughs) ask them to like communicate to like announce themselves in rooms Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're very cute do you want to describe jenny lynn she was so beautiful She's so beautiful. I mean, she looks incredible in this image. I think this image probably looks like it was about the, I would guess, probably 1840s, um, just based on the hair and the clothing. It's I love when you do that. <laughs> She's sitting very demurely in this image where uh, we get her hands folded in her lap in front of her. She's wearing a white gown that's off the shoulder uh, with a green fabric draped over her knees and part of her thighs. And she is looking off kind of off screen in this painting to her right but to the left of the image she's got brown hair split down the middle decorated down the sides think 1800s meets princess leia with flowers in her hair (laughs) um and she just again i could walk down the street and see this this woman she's 
got these beautiful soft pink features on her, like her nose and her lips and her fingers. It's just a very beautiful, very delicate painting. I really like seeing this image because if we go back to Henriette Collin, we see the way a celebrity like Jenny Lind influenced how Henriette would want to be painted because she also has the brown hair. She's styling her hair in the same way. So that's like like wider culture of that we see now. People try to look like the style that they see in celebrities. Celebrities yes. are both defining the style and just kind of doing the most fantastic version of it. Right. And being from northern europe they have this creamy white skin that is so popular mm-hmm. and those the sloping shoulders it's it's just so interesting to see a woman who was wealthy enough to be painted but not famous and then look right. at this celebrity and see her doing the exact same style yeah well and it's interesting too because before you know hollywood and all of that what it meant to be famous and quote unquote celebrity was being rich wealthy monarchs nobility Mm -hmm. and then it shifted to fame being the mark of what makes you important and powerful and we have to keep in mind even though hans describes himself as awkward other people describe him as awkward he's a famously good social climber he gets money Mm -hmm. from rich people he hangs out with dukes that's true even though he's awkward he's really doing the damn thing All of this story of him loving this woman is in direct contrast with another narrative that attempts to cast his pursuit of women in a very different light. Mm. So Anderson once said, quote, I shall never be engaged and it would be a great misfortune if it were ever to take place. Again, quoting Michael Booth, writing for The Independent, quote, Publicly, he courted numerous women, most famously Jenny Lind, the so-called Swedish Nightingale. Although he invariably selected targets he knew were unobtainable, women who were either engaged or about to be engaged or alternatively the daughters of friends who would never have allowed the marriage. On the rare occasion when one of his wooings went, quote, wrong and marriage appeared to be on the cards, Anderson would rapidly extricate himself by pleading poverty. Quote, beloved Sophie, you will never know how happy I could have been with you if only I had the money, he wrote shortly after an affair with the daughter of H.C. Orsted. As his wealth grew, he simply raised the bar on the income he felt was required to pop the question. (laughs) End quote. Okay. I mean, okay. But he, he also goes after unobtainable men. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm not willing to use unobtainable women as an excuse to rule out potential bisexuality. And, like, are we really going to act like this man who just seemed to love loving people didn't also maybe just love loving fancy women? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I think he loved the attention. I think he loved giving the attention. And I think... There was an intentional security in choosing people who are unobtainable. Any man he fell in love with was inherently unobtainable. Mm -hmm. And then any woman, he was interested in them as long as he could continue to project onto them what he wanted the relationship to be, not what it was. His journal from early 1844 includes 
details about jealousy, anger, his desperation and sensuality, but it includes more initials than full names. Mm. He also describes penis pain and a fear of becoming insane. Both of these details believed to be due specifically to masturbation. Historians believe that he would mark times he masturbated in his journal with small crosses in the margins of the pages. And there were known to be a fair number of crosses. Many of these markings were noted in connection with meetings with women. Mm. So again, I'm not buying that Hans didn't consider women to be sexually and or romantically attractive. It's interesting also that he used crosses because he's very religious and and the Christian relationship with masturbation is not a good one. No, I could see it being an atonement practice. It, yeah, it's buck wild and, and very feels very dark to me. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, so much of the way Christianity can push people down can feel really dark. And so, you know, we don't know that just because there are crosses in the margins on days he met with men or women or vice versa means that that's associated with any person. Mm -hmm. It's more like how much evidence do we have to go on? What are we, where are we leaning with this one? Now we're going to go on to Harold Scharf, dancer. (laughs) Ooh, Okay. Though their letters do not survive, Hans Christian Andersen was very infatuated with Harold Scharf, a ballet dancer 31 years his junior. Wow. He wrote, I long for him daily. And that's no surprise because when he was younger, Hans wanted to dance ballet. Mm-hmm. Between 1861 and 62, Andersen's diaries describe kisses and embraces as well as longing for the man. And his 1861 story, The Snowman, about a snowman's love for a stove, (laughs) is thought to be a response to his feelings about this relationship. It makes sense. He's just a sad boy. Tracy, there are so many pictures of this ballet dancer, but I pulled this one because I thought that you would like it. I don't know why. I love this. (laughs) I love this. This is a photo, uh, and it's clearly him in costume for a performance or I hope it is. Otherwise, he would be very out of fashion for the day. No, he's clearly in costume for at least the photo shoot. But from all of the pictures that I saw of him, it looks like, you know, for a show. He is young here. He looks to be in his 20s or 30s. He's got this teeny tiny, it looks like a little almost Dolly style mustache. (laughs) Um, And a teeny tiny little goatee right under his lip. Um, uh, Hans loves his, his low curls. Gotta say, this guy's got uh, hair. He's got a helmet on. So he's wearing chain mail and um, a helmet. It's very, I'm in a performance of, of a German opera where we're pretending to be Vikings energy. And he's holding something in his hand that I can't quite tell what it is. Like a sword or it looks a, a like bow. A metal... It's a bow. It looks like a oh, it looks like it's a top yeah, of a bow. Yeah, it's got to be a bow. Because otherwise yeah. it's just like a metal thing with a tassel. <laughs> yeah, I was like a whip. Uh, I think it's a bow. Um, Daddy Scharf. <laughs> <laughs> he's a handsome man. Um, he's got one hand crossed in front of him on his chest holding the bow. And uh, once again, I feel like I would just see this guy on like social media talking about politics in a video or something. Like he just uh, – these faces feel so real to people we see nowadays. I love his winged eyeliner. Oh, I didn't even catch that. 
And you can't see it in this photo, but this man's muscles had muscles. Like his legs are thick with just solid muscle. He looks like he could like punch through time and space. (laughs) 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 Which is so in contrast to like thin female ballerina like culture. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Male dancers are so strong. It's insane. And, like, this man, I imagine, is, like, classically hot because his muscles mm-hmm. have muscles, you know? hmm So, there are a lot of clickbaity headlines about Anderson that read, like, Hans Christian Anderson was a gay virgin. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, great. There's a fair amount of evidence to support the idea that this man was on the ace spectrum. But, like, sure, okay, news articles say that in like the weirdest most heteronormative <laughs> way possible fine oh yeah there, there there's no intention of like let's include everyone in this conversation it's very like mm, this guy was weird mm, learn about how weird he was it's so unfortunate clara Baum and Anya Arnstrup from the Hans Christian Andersen Center of University of Southern Denmark use the term asexual when describing Anderson. They add that his apparent aversion to sex stems from, quote, very traumatic details in his, quote, emotional life concerning the sexual sphere. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't. I was going to ask if you had any idea what that meant. I don't know what that means. I mean, it got, they kind of referenced his abuse during his childhood. I don't know that it inherently was sexual abuse. Yeah. <sighs> In support of this theory that he was asexual, many cite the fact that Anderson visited at least one brothel but seemed Mm -hmm. not to partake. On August 30th, 1866, he wrote in his diary, quote, During this entire trip, I've been urged to seek out a prostitute. However, tired as I was, I did all the same, decide to see one of these creatures— I approached a house. There appeared a woman in the business of selling human flesh, and four prostitutes paraded for me. The youngest was 18, or so they said. I asked her to stay. She wore almost nothing but a shift. I felt so sorry for her. I paid five francs to the madam, gave her, when she asked me for it, five francs, but did nothing, merely looked at the poor child who undressed completely and seemed surprised that I merely looked at her. I... (sighs) Okay, first of all, Sex worker, but obviously that's not the kind of language he was using. I'm not convinced that this quote where he felt sorry for this potential child is, like, the best evidence that he didn't have any sex. Yeah. it's To me, if someone described this, I'd be like, oh, so you felt bad, paid her, and then were too awkward to just get out of the situation, so you just sat there. And then left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. It's it's that example like we talked about with Radcliffe Hall of we have terms like asexual today that we understand in our context, but it just wasn't a term they had back then. So it's just not something we can ever fully place on them because it doesn't align with how they lived and viewed themselves. The next day after this, in his diary, he wrote... Many Parisian thoughts. It is good that I am leaving soon. The flesh is vulnerable. Oh, interesting. Sounds like he wants to engage with them and he thinks it's wrong. Which, to be clear, doesn't mean he's not asexual, right? Like, it's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. We, we got a lot going on as humans. Also, sounds like a lot of 
very Christian guilt to me, mm-hmm. especially knowing that he put crosses in his diary and he had a, a very strong relationship with his religion. Parisian thoughts might not sit well with him. Right. On May 5th, 1867, he wrote, quote, After having dinner, I walked about an unfulfilled desire, then went suddenly up to a shop which traded in human beings. One was painted with powder, the other plain-looking, a third quite a lady. I spoke with her, paid 12 francs, and left without having sinned in action, but probably in thought. She asked me to come again, said that I seemed to be very innocent for a gentleman. I felt so light and happy when I emerged from this house. Many would call me a spineless fellow. Am I this here? In the evening, I wandered about on the boulevard and saw painted ladies sitting in the coffee shops, playing cards, drinking beer, and chartreuse. It sounds to me like it is more along the lines of the idea that he thought it was wrong. The idea that I I didn't sin in action, but maybe in thought was what was really stopping him. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to get this very intimate look at his relationship with sex. Mm Mm-hmm. It sounds like he might prefer to be a bit of a voyeur. Yeah. And all these examples are consensual voyeurism, so, like, do your thing, buddy. The way that he is choosing to partake with sexuality doesn't inherently mean he is not sexual. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important detail here. Michael Booth adds, quote, But less well-known visits he made to a madam in Copenhagen might well have been more, quote, hands-on. We will never know for sure what happened as these visits don't appear in his diary. He only refers to them cryptically in his almanac. But we Mm. do know that he was flustered afterwards, not least because he was concerned he might have caught something. Mm. Still, throughout his life, he was adamant that he was, quote, sexually innocent and... Thus, we could get into the breakdowns that you and I talked about being difficult in the last episode. How do you know when someone is gay, bisexual, ace, etc., when they don't have that language themselves, as you right. and I have said a million times. However, he uses the word ascetic in his diary to describe himself. And that's a word he had at his disposal that is similar, yeah. also has religious ties, It does. It's a very intentional denying yourself of things you want in order to become closer to God. But also, we don't know what he wants exactly, but we do know that he was interested in people in Mm -hmm. some capacity sexually. And like, as the case with his diaries, I personally would say he's bi-romantic, experiences some interest in sexual pleasure if only with himself mm-hmm. but probably does fall somewhere on the ace spectrum as we understand it in a more nuanced way today there's also demi which means you're not actually sexually attracted to someone until you have a very deep emotional connection with them mm-hmm. and i want to add it is incredibly heteronormative to use penetrative sex with another human being as the end-all be-all marker of what sexuality can be. Mm -hmm. And that's not just with our modern perspective now. That was even then. So this is so cool. I, I didn't really know about this before. Victorian literature professor Patrick C. Fleming for his book Disney's Victorians writes that in their book, quote, Jane Austen and the Masturbating Girl, Eve Sedgwick posits another sexual identity, recognizable in the 19th century culture in which both Anderson and Austen lived, but no longer identified as such. 
In the intervening centuries, the identity of the masturbator was only one of the sexual identities subsumed, erased, or overridden in this triumph of the homo heterocalculus. Because Anderson's biographers focus singularly on his relationships, they perhaps miss an equally intriguing conclusion. Certainly, Anderson's erotic energies were centered on other people, but he may have physically expressed that energy by himself. In this sense, his sexuality was far from ascetic. For Sedgwick, considering masturbation as a distinct sexuality lets us see so powerful a form of sexuality runs so fully athwart the precious and embattled sexual identities whose meanings and outlines we always must insist on thinking we know. The point is less a historical claim about Austin or Anderson than a pre-sentist re-evaluation of our own assumptions about sexuality. What Anderson's biography helps us to see is that sexual identity exists along multiple intersecting axes, including not just the biological sex or gender assignment of one's self and one's partner, but the number of partners, including zero, whether sexual expression is physical or emotional, the cultural and historical communities in which one exists, and other factors that no list could exhaust, end quote. Whew. Let me just... Let me just summarize that because I think mm -hmm. it's the coolest quote ever, but it's also a little heady and just like chonky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the idea basically being that the masturbator is a sexuality that existed at the time. People acknowledged it and it got consumed later in modern understanding by this idea that someone had to define their sexuality by who else they related to. Got it. So it's like an early version of Ace. Yes. So he could, in his own time, either privately to himself or not acknowledging it, have existed as someone who was aware of what being ace means now. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's worthy of acknowledgement specifically because so often people get wrapped up in sexuality and even gender being related to how you exist among others. Yeah. And your sexual relationship does not begin and end with other people you it can you can have a sexual relationship defined and only realized in yourself absolutely yeah and, and it can be just one small part of who you are as a bigger person yes ladies and gentlemen i am gonna say maybe ace icon hans christian anderson I, let's let's claim it for now and and you know it's it's always tough it's like we've been saying it's it's hard to put things on but if it makes someone feel more seen or more accepted i think it's important to try to see yourself in history where you can and i do think this is nuanced because you and i do take the stance like for certain people you really can't make decisions but hans christian anderson really seemed to kind of be tackling his own relationship with his sexuality in a, a very aware way Mm-hmm. okay are you ready for a little story? I'm so ready. It's not what I expected to write, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Great. Once there was a man whom the whole world loved madly. Wherever he went, those who saw his wide, wondering eyes would smile and say, I hope he turns his eyes on me, this man, for I love him dearly and would love him well. If only I had the opportunity. Ah, no. Once, there was a man 
who loved the whole world madly. Wherever he went, he looked upon the world with his wide, wondering eyes and said to himself, I hope to turn my eyes on a worthy man, for I will love him dearly and would love him well, if only I had the opportunity. This man loved often, often despite himself. Once he loved a boy like waves upon the shore, crashing and receding in a constant tide of boldness and fear, pulled by a gravity of love that would dwarf even the moon, silvered into shame by lesser power, his salted tears a buoyancy of praise upon which his friend might float forever in adoration, undaunted and undrowned by the torrents that hindered lesser men. Once he loved a man like silence, reliable and constant, a lifetime of words coiled and compressed into a thick and weighty promise of forever. He became the stroke of the pen on the page, the lick on the envelope's edge, the distance between sending and receiving, languishing in the possibility of every word until the pair needed none at all. He once loved a prince like a flower in the sun. Blooming as a tribute to the monarch's celestial brilliance, he woke and turned, flourished and grew to yield an unending harvest of acclaim. Where others flattered and fawned, a parade of praise mutated into self-aggrandizing, he bore only the fruit of love, thriving an oath all its own. I once loved a singer like air, in and out from within her, a hymn of worship as soft as a whisper and bold as a belt. She drew me like a gasp, the space between notes, and I would form and reform into her lungs, her heart, her mind, infused with my awe and applause. I loved a dancer like a shadow, my devotion clinging match step for step, reflecting every perfect edge of his face, his hair, his hands, I unfurled at his back, bold in all his brightest moments and close when the world was in darkness. I loved, and I loved, and I loved the tide, the flower, the air itself. I polished the world, transforming it into something shining and new and perfect until they sullied it, each one preferring, I think, the dingy world as it is. How? I look upon the world and I do not understand how you could choose their filthy mockery of love when I could build you a kingdom in a kiss. I long for you, you above any I have loved before and there will be no one after I... <laughs> no, the man longed for him, the man wrote him letters, the man pined and crawled and begged for him as there could be no other in this world after such a one as he. Do you see that you drive me to fiction? I would story the world for you, my love, if only you would let me fill your life with fairy tales. I am a writer, but I would be so much more than words if only you would let me. Allow me the opportunity to love you well, my dearest one. Don't you see? I am mad for you. The different ways of describing love in this was so cool and so beautiful. What what? The one that really struck me, and I, I couldn't give you a reason why, was I loved the singer like air. She drew me like a gasp, 
the space between notes, and I would form and reform into her lungs, her heart, her mind infused with my awe and applause. Like, I mean, poetry. Like, that's that sounds like lyrics to a song I would listen to on repeat. <laughs> I... I I thought I was going to write a story about a mermaid or something, and then I just realized I wanted to write a love letter where he yeah. had, where he got poetic about all of the loves of his that I had learned about, and I'm about to seriously out myself here, but I took um, two sentences from actual love letters that I've written. <gasps> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my God. It Okay. So I, listen, I've been coming on a little hot to this man for someone that also loves to write a love letter because it's so fun. It's so fun to really get in on the overdramatic loving if the other person is in on the game. Oh, yeah, yeah. If they're not into it, it, it has a very different energy. No, no, no. If... If if both of you are like you want to you want to be over dramatic, nineteenth century, <laughs> love letter writers, and you got to do it by hand, you got to like write a, a letter. Yeah, obviously, so um, wax seal it at that point as well. Of oh, a hundred percent. And listen, if you're sitting there and you're like, boy, would I love to do that, but I don't have anyone to write love letters to, consider the TTRPG Good Society because built into mm-hmm. the game, you take breaks where you write letters to people and it's all a game about like getting your love and social maneuvering so it is just begging yeah for people to go full in character love letter (laughs) (laughs) i just uh you know he's a man he he's a man who really embodies that idea of like uh, what is it a man who writes you one sonnet loves you, but a man who writes you a hundred sonnets loves sonnets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he, he loves the idea of things, I think, more than the reality of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying not to call myself out too much because I also, <laughs> like, clearly love to go in on the dramatic writing, but that's not, like, mm-hmm. the way love exists practically. Yeah. And I don't know if he knew how to practically love someone. No, I really don't know if he did. So after all of this overdramatic loving, I want to give you my favorite story about Hans Christian Andersen that has ever existed. It is the best thing, and it is what made me want to do this episode. Okay. Okay, so. Hans Christian Andersen was obsessed with Charles Dickens. The two met in 1847 during Anderson's first trip to Britain when he was having a promotional tour of sorts because some of his stories were just translated into English. Mm -hmm. Anderson said that Dickens was, quote, the greatest writer of our time. And the two met at a party and talked out on the veranda. And then Dickens made his first mistake, Mm -hmm. which was to leave a package with some of his books and a note where Anderson was staying a few weeks later. Because then Anderson became obsessed with him just like he did with everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I saw it coming a little bit. For nine years, he sent Dickens frequent fan letters and books for him to review. And then in March of 1857, in the midst of Dickens leaving his wife, 
Anderson came to stay in their country home. Oh my god. He wrote to Dickens that he was coming to stay for two weeks. Quote, mm-hmm. my visit is intended for you alone. Above all, always leave a small corner in your heart. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the, oh my god. Is this, like, okay, I'm, I, there's no evidence that this wasn't platonic, but like even platonic, that's really intense. I think intense is a good word to sum up Hans Christian Andersen. So he stayed for two weeks. Yeah. And then the two weeks passed and he didn't leave. <laughs> oh, my God. And he kept not leaving for five weeks. Oh, my God. It was so bad that Dickens wrote to former Prime Minister Lord John Russell, quote, he spoke French like Peter the Wild Boy and English like the Deaf Dumb School. He could not pronounce the name of his own book, The Improvisatore, in Italian. <laughs> And his transliteress appears to make out that he can't speak Danish, end quote. Okay. We know from that quote from Dickens that he probably wasn't a nice guy either. The wild boy he's yeah. referring to uh, was a, a German child named Peter who was considered to be feral. He's also mocking people with disabilities. That yeah. sucks. But also, he's really over Anderson. Yeah. So we have these two writers trapped in this country home together and anderson is complaining that there's no one there to shave him every morning oh my god oh my god hans no stop recall the chester neck hair situation i'm not usually down for mocking people for their body hair situation but like you're complaining that there's no one there to shave you and a house that you're staying in Three weeks passed when you were supposed to leave? Get wrecked. Yeah. And his moodiness is driving everyone insane. He threw himself on the lawn weeping after receiving a bad review. God. And Dickens explained in a letter to a friend that, quote, Whenever Hans got to London, he got into wild entanglements of cabs and sherry and never seemed to get out of them again until he came back here and cut out paper into all sorts of patterns and gathered the strangest little nosegays in the woods. So he just got drunk and then was a weird little guy. (laughs) Just a little crafty boy. (laughs) And Anderson wept again when he finally left the Dickens oh household. Oh, God. And then Dickens went right into the guest room where he'd been staying and wrote on the mirror, Hans Anderson slept in this room for five weeks, which seemed to the family ages. Ouch. <laughs> Could you imagine? That is nightmare. Having someone in your house for so long and being like, oh, my God, please. Please leave. And I think that's why I judge him so much. Like, write your little love letters, have your fairy tales, be (laughs) super intense, but, like, don't be a jerk. But that, again, links to the idea of, like, some kind of neurodivergence of just not picking up the social cues, not understanding what's appropriate or acceptable in society and all that. Yeah, and he was the main character. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's like, all of these people are here for my plot. (laughs) A hundred percent. One of the details that I was most surprised to learn about him was 
just how anxious he was. He described himself as a homebody at times. He really feared losing his passports and catching diseases. Mm. Uh, he, he was really tall and neurotic. Uh, and he worried about his country and his career and his sexuality. Uh, when traveling to Constantinople in 1840, he wrote to his benefactor, Jonas Collin, and said, quote, No son, no brother can suffer more than I do, but it is just as well I am leaving. My soul is unwell. He's that classic example of, like, you must be a tortured soul to be a writer. Yeah, no one take that this as as proof that that is the case. I love a tortured story, clearly, by virtue of me writing as Hans Christian Andersen. I will go in, but I... Not a tortured soul. Tracy, would you call yourself a tortured soul? No, we've both lived very privileged lives. Yes, and me, even at my most tortured, it's really just tummy issues at the end of the day. <laughs> oh, yeah. And for me, when I, at my most tortured, most anxious, most depressed, most whatever mental health issues, it's always me being like, ah, my brain is out to get me. Mm -hmm. There's a brain problem I need to fix. And then I call my therapist because I live in modern times where all of that is available Imagine to what therapy could do for this boy. So much. I will say, though, that travel for him, which he did frequently, he had five travel books, mm -hmm. was probably the antidote for his uh, what seemed to be a major worry for him, which was fitting into this rigid society that forced him to be closeted. Mm-hmm. Mm so Anderson died on August 4th, 1875. He had cancer of the liver and never fully recovered from a fall from his bed that had happened two years previous. Biography.com writes, quote, The Danish government began commemorating Anderson's life and work before his death. Plans got underway to erect a statue of the author whom the government paid a national treasure stipend. He got paid for just being a special boy. Did they pay Hans or did they? They paid him. So I, sorry, I, 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 that quote confused the issue. He got paid before he died for being a national treasure. Okay, so as much as we mocked his social climbing and, you know, desperation for recognition, like he did it. Oh, he did the damn thing. Secure the bag, Hans. Yeah. <laughs> and he inspired Kenneth Graham, who wrote The Wind in the Willows, A.A. A. Milne, who wrote Winnie the Pooh. He's frequently described as a pre-Disney Disney writer because of his mm -hmm. use of toys coming to life. That was a big thing for him. Magical stories. Uh, though The Little Mermaid is a direct retelling, he was also one of the inspirations behind The Emperor's New Groove and, more recently, Frozen. Yeah. His queerness was not known about for decades by design. Mm -hmm. He was a literary icon. The Danish government wasn't super eager to make that a uh, pinnacle of his personality. Mm -hmm. He was also an odd duck. He was an odd fellow. Uh, yeah. The Ugly Duckling was a story he wrote about his own feelings about living in yeah, the world. Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely tracks. And the quote from The Ugly Duckling that everyone uses when they mention mm -hmm. Hans Christian Andersen is... His own image, no longer a dark gray bird, ugly and disagreeable to look at, but a graceful and beautiful swan, to be born in a duck's nest in a farmyard, is of no consequence to a bird if it is hatched from a swan's egg. Which is basically like, bummer, you felt really out of place, it doesn't matter because you were like better than them all along secretly. If I had to pick a quote that I associate with him, that is a weird pick, but a very me pick, uh, mm -hmm. It would be, 
Does all the beauty of the world stop when you die? No, said the old oak. It will last much longer, longer than I can even think of. Well then, said the little mayfly, we have the same time to live, only we reckon differently. And that's from The Complete Fairy Tales by Hans Christian Andersen. Mm-hmm. He liked time as much as I did. Yeah, you're both time people. I like that quote. Me too. Um, and okay, Tracy, uh, mm-hmm. do you remember in elementary school when we did that like play thing in the cafeteria mm-hmm. where we all had to be different bugs? Yes, and I memorized every single poem for every single one of them, even though I was only one. And I still remember the Mayfly one. Do you still remember yes, it? Yes, because I was the Mayfly. Mayflies, Mayflies fly, fly from May till June. June. Their life, life is, is over, over far too soon. soon. A day, a or, day two or two to dance to fly. To fly. Hello, 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 goodbye, goodbye. 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 <laughs> I can't believe we just did that. <laughs> that is a I core remember that memory. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even a Mayfly, but do I remember which one I was? No, but I remember the Mayfly one. I was the Mayfly. There was only one Mayfly, and I remember being irked because some of the other bugs had multiple of the bug. Like, That's such like an I'm an only child. I'm mad that I'm the only one here. Whereas me, I was like mad that I had other people because I wanted to be the star. <laughs> I remember my paper mayfly that I made was like way too big. It wasn't supposed <laughs> to be that big. Oh, it's, it's so, I can't believe we both remember that poem. I think about that poem at least once a month. At least once a month in my adult life. Same. I don't know why, but same. (laughs) I honestly think maybe that's why I liked that quote so much. (laughs) Because it's a mayfly. Oh, my God. Great job, Rowan. That was such a really good in-depth analysis of Hans Christian Andersen, our queer boyfriend. I'm sorry. I think I maybe broke it down too much, but I just wanted to emphasize that, like, he is arguably like a a bisexual or biromantic ace icon and Mm -hmm. he was also insufferable and that so often people are so eager for any kind of representation rightfully Mm -hmm. so in the lgbtq plus community that then the people have to be perfect they have to be Mm -hmm. amazing and actually representation means showing all of the myriad of ways people can be and he was kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. Like, I would dramatic hate to know this man, I think. I would have a very short fuse with him. I'd have very little patience. Oh, absolutely. I, truly, I would say bucket up buttercup to him fairly often. Oh, yeah. And I also love his writing, you know? We got mm-hmm. nuance. We got layers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you did a great job with this episode. Um, I really liked it. Thanks. Uh, and yeah. and let this be my my resume pitch. If anybody wants a dramatic love letter, um, I'm your girl. Oh, yeah. She writes the best love letters. I will write poetry <laughs> about love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. But now it is your turn to tell me something good. Okay. So mm-hmm. my friend made me biscuits. Biscuits. I can eat neither gluten nor dairy. And I was having a very bad day. And my friend made me biscuits. That is so nice. And And so like, I mean, how were they? Were they just delicious and full of love and joy and everything? They came. I got to eat them warm. Oh, 
That's so great. And I did butter and honey. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know how some biscuits are fluffy and some biscuits are dense, mm-hmm. like a little sconier, and some biscuits yeah. are a little like muffinier. Mm-hmm. This is the scone version of a biscuit, which is my preferred. And the gluten-free okay. biscuits kind of taste like this cross between a biscuit and almost like Irish soda bread. Oh, Which I okay. also love and can't have. So it was like yeah. the ultimate possible baked good for me. Mm-hmm. And I did honey and butter, but I have more. And I got raspberry jam. I, okay. Biscuits and jam are the best. Here's the thing. That's my go-to. Every meal that I've had today has been biscuit. <laughs> oh, that's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Would I recommend it as nutritionally sound? No, but I don't have a tummy ache and I got to have biscuits. So win, 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 win. I mean, tens across the board. Hey, kids, you can do whatever you want when you're an adult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. For good or for bad, you really have the power. Um, yeah, so that's my something good. Someone made me sad day biscuits yeah i love that i'm sorry you had a sad day but i love that you got biscuits yeah and i'm not the friend who will bake for other friends i will purchase a baked good for another friend mm-hmm. I'll, I'll buy a fancy baked good for another friend but i'm not much of a baker so i i do feel that that enterprise comes with extra love because yeah. to me it's not like a fun activity <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I enjoy baking, but man, I haven't done it in a long time. And also my oven's weird where it's like it says it's one temperature, but really it's another. So I have to have a thermometer inside to monitor it. What a little slut. I know. It's a coward. (laughs) It's it's actually an overachiever. It's always like 50 degrees hotter than it's supposed to be. Ooh. ooh. Yeah. All right. (laughs) All right, Tracy, tell me something good. My something good is that I recently got to see both of your parents. So my something good is your parents. <laughs> oh, this is the best because I was getting text messages the whole time from you and Casey yeah. on the one side and my parents on the other side and everyone was just so giddy. Oh, yeah. They're the best. So we went and I was just helping out for a shoot that they were doing for their company and, and getting stuff together. And I just went because I was like, I don't know. I love Rowan's parents and Casey's helping them as a model and I can help out around if needed and it was just great we all worked together well and we're kind of each doing our own things and your parents are so sweet your mom specifically got me Fiji water (laughs) because on the podcast I had talked about that I love a little Fiji water treat can I tell you how this went down yeah Um, my mom called me and she's like, they won't tell me what their favorite snacks are, but I love them and I want them to feel appreciated. What do I get them? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, get, get gluten-free things for Tracy. And my mom's like, oh, gluten-free? I got gluten-free because of me. She and nailed it. Then I said, but you know, Tracy really likes Fiji water. I don't know if that's too much. And my mom went, oh, if she likes Fiji water. She's getting Fiji water. <laughs> It was, I talked about it for like days. It was the best. And then the cookies she got, I took home because they were amazing. Um, (laughs) There were some kind of gluten-free Oreo version. I like them probably, I'm going to say it, just as much, if not better, than real Oreos. (laughs) They were really good. My parents love you and Casey so much. And since the shoot, it's, I just get constant little updates about how much they love you guys. Like they, every day it's like a new 
remembering about why they love me so much. And it's so sweet. Yeah. It was such a fun time because your mom and I were like goofing. We were just like saying silly things to get Casey to laugh as, as she was doing her modeling stuff. And then your dad and I were just chatting about like photography and videography. And he was teaching me all these things and showing me the setup. And so it was just it was such a good day. Um, that I, was something good. It was a really, really lovely part of my last week. My dad is my tech expert. If I ever have a question about anything that plugs in, it's always my father. Uh, yes. God. And I learned he can also find – Casey was complaining she couldn't find – a, a plug-in for video editing to get like a rain on a window thing and she's like i looked and i looked and i looked five minutes your dad holds up his phone and he's like here's one yeah he's like that he's yeah. a technomancer i don't know magic person that speaks to the tech stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i love the picture of all of you that you sent me oh yeah yeah that was your mom's idea she's like we gotta get a selfie before we all leave it was the best so it was really nice that was my something good um, but thank you all so much for joining us on this week's episode. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Be a gay problematic writer <laughs> asshole. <laughs>